Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. Welcome back to another double feature, Father Jeffrey. These double features have been getting good press. That's excellent. I, I, I'm enjoying them. Oh yeah, people like them. Uh, so in today's double feature, we have included a rather catchy title, let's put it that way. There's no such thing as the Orthodox Church. And of course, we're going to explore what we mean when we say that, because it can sound a little scandalous at first. Is it clickbait, um, Father Yuri? Is it? It's not quite, because clickbait would be like, <laughs> you know... Um, uh, you know, these five churches, only three are Orthodox. You won't guess which ones aren't. <laughs> and we won't tell you to the very end. Exactly. You know, you know, uh, bishops hate this priest. And then, it'll, you know, but what priest? You have to find out why. Well, I think they've already worked that one out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today, what inspired me to pick this topic and uh, was a talk that Dr. Daniel Opperwall gave at the Shiptitsky Institute of Eastern Christian Studies at the University of Toronto back in 2018, no, to early 2019, I believe it was, um, where he spoke about the way that the church stays unified through history and different models that the church has used to, to stay unified as one and how the church has adapted to different historical situations. And uh, I found it a very compelling talk because he entitled the talk, The Golden Age of Christian Unity. And one of his arguments was that we're actually currently living in maybe not just the single, but one of the golden ages of Christian unity, which I, I think a lot of the time when we look out at the Christian world, we see it as quite divided and, and things are marked by division. And there's this always this call to unity, the prayer, the week of prayer for Christian unity. Lots of cities have things like that. Um, but he actually says, uh, he claimed in the talk that we're actually in that golden age of Christian unity. And before I go on, I just want to let people know, you can actually go to YouTube and, and watch this lecture if you like. But the first thing I want to bring up, Father Jeffrey, mm -hmm. is this thing. I don't know if, if you would call like if it has a technical name, but I'm going to call it branch theory. Right. And branch theory, if I can give a quick rundown and maybe you can fill out the picture afterwards, Father Jeffrey, is um, you, you can like Google this. If you Google it or DuckDuckGo it or whatever, and you type in, you know, Orthodox church history branch theory, right? You, you'll, you'll get this image of this single unbroken line starting 33 AD at Pentecost that will say Eastern Orthodox Church, right? And it'll like be this straight line through time, like a timeline. But then at occasional times in history, there'll be another line that divides off of that central main line. And that other line will be something like 
the Roman Catholic Church at 1054, right, becomes this other line that breaks off of the the true line. And then, you know, the Crusades happen on that that broken line. And then the Reformation happens, and you start getting all these other lines. And the first thing that Dr. Opperwald did in his talk was actually criticize this entire model of branch theory. Um, and, and I'm wondering, did you want to fill out the picture of branch theory at all? The, this, I don't know. Is branch theory the right word? I don't know. Um, probably not in one sense. And that is that uh, branch theory is kind of associated with um, what emerged in the 19th century as a, a thought amongst Anglicans in particular. But it was about something to say about all the apostolic churches, so churches that could trace themselves back to, I mean, it, it's related to what you're saying, because they could trace themselves back to the kind of single single trunk of a tree that grew out of the apostolic era. And the way it's normally presented by, you know, the Tractarians, these high church Anglicans in in England in the 19th century, with, they were going through a period of re-Catholicizing Anglicanism. And the way they put it was that the Catholic church is divided into three. There is in the East, the Greek part of the Catholic church. And then in the West, there's the Latin part of the Catholic church, but that itself was split into the English and Latin parts. So that if effectively there are three parts of the apostolic church. And only when you take all three of them together, do you have the whole church. So Greeks in the East, Latins and English in the West. You can see how this comes out of a peculiarly 19th century Anglican um, appreciation of history and so forth, the, the place given to English Catholicism and, and so forth. And of course, what they've completely forgotten about is that there were more than just Greeks in the East. So I think a modern or more contemporary revision of this would make some space for the non-Chalcedonian churches within this framework. But essentially, all of the apostolic churches, um, and, and they're noted because, you know, not only do they have a timeline of history that goes right back, I mean, Anglicans at that time were not tracing themselves to the 1500s, but rather, you know, back to the the Romans who were there in the first century and brought Christianity with them and sort of seeing an undivided, you know, history there. And of course, there's the Latin church in the West. Clearly, the apostles were, were throughout the Christian East from Jerusalem to Antioch and, and other places throughout the East. So all of these churches not only have this kind of long history, but they also have a certain way of governing themselves. They have bishops and presbyters and deacons. They, they're sacramental churches, they're liturgical churches. So these Anglicans were sort of seeing this similarity, seeing the common history and saying, if you want the whole one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you need to take it as a tree that has these branches. And they're focusing, therefore, on the apostolic, you know, churches and excluding, therefore, reformed churches, you know, the, 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 the later, you know, radical reformed, you know, groups like the Anabaptists and Methodists and so forth. And then certainly the evangelicals and, and modern revivalists and Pentecostals and everything that come along much later. So this is just about the apostolic churches. And they're saying, the branches of the church Catholic are these. And only when you take all of them together, do you have the entire, you know, church. And of course, the problem with that model as Anglicans formulated it, and not all Anglicans, this was the, you know, the kind of high church tractarian as the Oxford movement, you know, re-Catholicizing of, of Anglican thinking in the 19th century. But the problem with that model, of course, is that neither the Latin Catholics, you know, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, nor the Greek Catholics, in their mind, you know, with the Eastern Orthodox, 
would have the same view at all. So at the time that they were formulating this, you would have very strong statements from the Church of Rome. No, we, only we, are the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. To be outside of our communion is to be outside of the church. And there were Eastern Orthodox churches and proclamations saying exactly the same thing, that if you were not in the communion of the Orthodox churches, you're actually outside of that. So this branch theory as such is is kind of associated with that. Now, of course, the model you've talked about, you know, Dr. Upperwell presenting is related to that. But I think, you know, that schematization of, you know, is one that, you know, either Roman Catholic could could use or Eastern Orthodox and just showing, well, actually the tree itself continues and the, the branches are just kind of veering off in, in different directions and ultimately normally shown in some sort of severed way, right? Because uh, in this understanding of outside the church, there is no salvation, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, you know, until kind of more contemporary ecumenical dialogue and so forth, were very wont to just simply say, nobody who's not in the communion of our church is actually within the church itself. So it's, it's, complex but you see various diagrams as you say you can go and google these these things and you'll you'll find ample expressions of how the church that whoever you're talking about you know if you're talking from a roman catholic perspective they are the true church if you're talking from an eastern orthodox perspective that's the true church and everybody else is sort of consigned to outer darkness beyond the pale however you want to talk about it but certainly severed from the trunk of the tree of the church yeah, the, one of the things that Dr. Opperwall brought up in particular about this model that he presented was that it was inaccurate regarding how coming in and out of communion, how churches coming in and out of communion with each other actually happens, right? We we have this sense of, okay, well, you know, there's the first thousand years of Christianity and everyone was in union. And then in 1054, the you know Catholic and the Orthodox Church split. And from that exact moment, everyone got the tweet on their phone. They got the emergency alert saying, Eastern Church and Western Church, no longer together. Um, and then no one had communion together anymore after that from East and West. And I think that was the main point that he, he would criticize. Do you, want, do you want to speak a bit more about like intercommunion or, or yeah. how, how, uh, how the church is related to each other in the past uh, 2,000 years? Yeah. So, I mean, the only way you can sort of think of it, you know, in these terms is if you kind of have something like um, an electrical circuit in mind for the way the church works, right? Um, and, you know, electrical circuits work when there are no breaks. And as soon as there's a break, then, you know, one part of that is going to be excluded from the flowing of of the electricity and and so forth. And so under this, you know, largely retrospective, I mean, nobody living through these things at the time could know, although there are attempts today to precisely to do this kind of immediate thinking about the thing. But, you know, splits came and went all through church history. I mean, part of Dr. Upperwell's point is that you see this in the New Testament. It's it's in the, amongst the apostolic churches themselves that, that are so lauded in these models, you know, the, this continuity from the apostles. Well, one of the things that continuity from the apostles implies is, is precisely disunity and, you know, arguments and divisions and, you know, incidents at Antioch and, and, and so forth that, that we see embedded in in the New Testament. But I'll say, if you've got a kind of electrical circuit model of the church, then, you know, electricity is flowing to certain points. Um, 
you know, or it's not. And it's like, it's a one or a zero, right? You're on or you're off, you're, you're in or you're out. And this, this kind of thinking, um, largely doesn't come around until, you know, kind of late in the middle ages. It's a, you know, and into the enlightenment period and so forth. It's a, it's a kind of rationalist construct, a scientific model of, of the church, as it were, of communion and so forth, that, that really is very hard to reconcile with historical reality and real relationships and, and people and so forth. What you find more often than not is when there are breaks in communion, um, you know, usually disputes over, you know, whether it's, you know, over property or for doctrine, over liturgy or whatever, uh, canonical practice more often than anything else, uh, you know, you know, A falls out of communion with B for a time, but meanwhile, A and B are both still in communion with C, right? And so, you know, you cannot make that electrical circuit model, that kind of clear, rational, on-off, white-black, whatever, division, you know, between parts of, of the church. And the reality is, um, to this day, you know, there is someone somewhere every single day uh, who is, for example, Orthodox or Catholic communing or sharing sacraments in some part of the world, you know, somewhere. It's never stopped. Um, and, and, and really only, you know, the, the possibility of it stopping in a kind of more radical way only emerges 800 years after the so-called split of 1054, which was far from a circuit break, right? This was the one, you know, incident that takes place between, you know, the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople, a kind of fight between these two uh, different churches. They removed each other from the diptychs, from the prayers where they were maintaining communion with one another. But, the, the you know, as you say, there were no tweets or emails going out to announce this. And even if there were, I mean, the idea that everywhere and everyone at all times would adhere to to this is, is absolutely, you know, ludicrous. It takes no notion of the way, you know, church history works. So in all of these divisions, no matter which one you come across, you'll find that there's someone somewhere doing something to, to kind of maintain, you know, that bond of unity. So, uh, you know, there, there is in this regard, something to that branch theory, you know, of the Anglican um, Tractarians of the 19th century saying that, you know, they were trying to do it in a kind of systematic way and sort of argue from theological principles and, and so forth that, you know, as long as you had this kind of continuity and this kind of, you know, church governance and a sacramental orientation, then you were maintaining the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, no matter that there was kind of earthly division, you know, we all belong to the same church. And I think that's where, you know, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox would have, you know, turned around and said, what do you mean? There has to be visible you know, expression of unity. You can't just make it a theoretical construct and say, as long as you are, you know, kind of keeping in this tradition that that you're part of, of the church, you need to be in communion. You know, you, but so what could have been the argument, the counter argument to both Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox at the time is, well, actually, you'll find that in these ways and places, you know, we still are. So the, there's no proper circuit break that, that that ever takes place. And this is true from the time of the apostles onwards. 
every generation. You know, we, we often think back to the golden age, and this is part of what Dr. Upperwell is trying to address in his talk, and even by that language, golden age. We think golden age, we you know, or we hear golden age, we think the Cappadocians or St. John Chrysostom, or we think of, you know, those great church fathers. And we, you know, if you actually pour into the history, you'll find that a great many of them at different times and places were not fully in communion with each other. And that's possibly disheartening to find out, except, you know, particularly if you've got this circuit break model of church communion that, you know, there's a dispute between, well, let's take today, Moscow and Constantinople. Which one of them, the question is immediately posed on Facebook and Twitter, is the true church? You know, they're out of communion with each other. The circuit break model says one of them is in and one of them is out. And there are plenty of people who will be writing blogs and arguments for one side you know, or the other. Meanwhile, the vast majority of Orthodox remain in communion with both, or take Jerusalem and Antioch, who have been out of communion or, you know, concelebration in that sense for, you know, a decade or longer now. But nobody's made much of a deal of that. We hope that they resolve the the dispute that they have between them. But meanwhile, you know, the rest of the church, you know, continues. So as we approach, you know, the how the church works in history, I think taking away that you know, very um, false and uh, misleading model of circuit break grace and communion is one of the aspects that, that, that would be very helpful in terms of unpacking some of the historical reality and indeed the work to be done in terms of manifesting the unity of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. He points, as in he uh, is Dr. Opperwall in his in his lecture, points to the common trope that people look to the earliest church as this the the perfect model, right? The church in perfection before you know it got sullied by other things. And one of the things he points out is that the church was actually born was born within a breakdown in the church's leadership, right? The, um, the first order of business that the church takes on is what to do with Judas's empty spot, right? That there's this, there's already this break within that, that fellowship that exists. And the first order of business is to figure that out. But, but also when we look at the earliest church, the, the, the earliest church, I think a lot of us have in our imagination what, I don't know, I'm sort of might be making some of this up, but uh, this kind of big bang model of like, there was one event and then everything was in unison. Everything was perfectly united. And then things started to fall away as time went on, right? Then you started to get heretics that would fall away from that original purity uh, of the uh, of this one united body. Whereas it seems historically that, the, I don't know, could you call it like a fireworks model where there's a lot of different eruptions of this thing happening and over time, the church takes on different models of unity. Um, is is that right? Is it right to think that way? I love the idea of the fireworks. I mean, there's probably fewer, you know, better examples that you could think of you know, for, for that early church energy and that explosion and. You get this growth of all kinds of communities that, you know, having experienced something of, you know, Christ's ministry and his 
passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, and that experience of Pentecost, you know, there are various ways in which people decide to take up the challenge of living after the pattern of Christ and, and continuing what he asked people to do, which was declare the forgiveness of sins, you know, repent and receive the kingdom of God. This is available here and now if you you know, follow after Jesus Christ, call him Lord, form communities and live in this way. And, you know, the kingdom of God will be arriving. Well, you know, we have this really clever thing we've done. We've, we've packaged all of that period quite neatly. We, we call it the New Testament. We also have, you know, other collections like the, Apost- uh, the Apostolic Fathers, you know, the, the, the disciples of the disciples, and we read them. And, you know, it's very easy for us to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and, you know, these other early writers, uh, all as just being part of this one monolithic thing. Right. And so when we're reading Matthew and we're reading John, and it's very, very different portrayals of who Jesus is, very different themes, very different interests, clearly very different circumstances of the communities, but we kind of harmonize that really easily in our minds. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, you know, in retrospect, you know, in the emergence of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church through the vicissitudes of history, through all of the changes and developments and and everything, those all found their place. Certainly by the middle of the second century, the canonical gospels, the the fourfold, you know, gospels that St. Irenaeus will be famously one of the first ones to defend. there, There are dozens and dozens of these gospels out there, but he's defending these four. And by bringing them into kind of canonical shaping and union within the New Testament, we do read Matthew in light of John, and we read Luke in light of Mark, and 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 Paul is in there somewhere, and we think about Jesus and, and so forth. So all of this, you know, happens through time, and that's not a bad thing. But we have to realize that those that was not necessarily the reality as experienced. If you were in a Johannine community in in around the year eighty, right, and you know, a couple hills over in another village, there was a, a Matthewite, you know, community, and you each had, you know, only those gospels. What would you have felt, you know, towards the other group? Um, would you have sensed that, you know, you were you were doing the same thing just in slightly different ways with a slightly different emphasis? Or were you thinking, you know, we've really got to get our act together here and get the, you know, the message the Apostle John has passed on to us the way the Lord Jesus is is shared with us and proclaimed to us in this way? Because look, that other community, they've got, they've got the wrong end of the stick. They're focusing on the wrong things, you know, for them, you know, Jesus is more like the new Moses, but we really understand that, you know, this is the word of God, you know, who's become incarnate. Let's, let's make sure those themes are, are emphasized and so forth. And, you know, to be perfectly, you know, open to, so what's happening there, and this is Dr. Opperwall's point, you know, there is a greater amount of variety, let's say in the Christology, between that Johannine and Matthewite community in the year 80, than there is between Eastern Orthodox and let's say a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Calvinist today. Because all of those people have have received the entire New Testament. Not only have they received the entire New Testament, they've received it as canonically shaped by the early church. And also they've read it 
all of them, the Lutheran, the Calvinist, the Baptist, the Eastern Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, whoever you pull together here, they've all read it through the lens of the Christology of the ecumenical councils. They'll all tell you about Christ's full humanity, full divinity. They all talk about the Trinity that, you know, and so forth. So the unity that emerges through time is far greater than the unity that was actually present in that very earliest time, you know, in the church. And it's not something to be disheartened by in any way. You know, we, we need to be able to look to history and the promises that God gives to first Israel and then to, to those people who follow Jesus as the summing up and fulfillment of Israel. You know, we need to take those seriously, that his covenant love is everlasting. He will not abandon us. And as Jesus himself says, the Holy Spirit, you know, will guide us into all truth and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If we take that seriously, we will understand that in and through God acting through history, you know, we can be led into truth and ultimately unity in that truth. It doesn't have to have dropped magically from the sky, right? It doesn't have to be that, um, you know, that model that we often think of that somehow, you know, from this moment was a, a perfect united church in doctrine and so forth, and that we've sort of fallen away from that. We need to return to that. The, the history that we've gone through is, can actually be a more positive process than, than we often you know, give credit for. So, so yes, looking backwards, there's a canonical shaping, there's an apostolic and uh, Catholic shaping to the history of the church, to doctrine, to, you know, as, as these different heresies emerge and so forth, the church deals with those. But in the very earliest church, you know, all of the people, you know, are there. And it's not clear, are the Gnostic Gospels going to win out? Are the, the more narrative Gospels of that that we now have going to going to win out. That was one of the the things that determined you know whether they were going to be in the New Testament or not. The Gnostic ones tend to be just collections of sayings, you know, all kinds of of different you know um, you know aphorisms and, and and sayings of Jesus and so forth with no narrative context. What unites, despite all their differences, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is they all tell a narrative of, of who Jesus is and centered obviously on the Paschal mystery of his passion, death and resurrection. And, you know, that un uniting feature was what brought them together despite very different themes, very different Christologies, very different, um, you know, histories and circumstances of the communities that, that brought them in, into being. And, and so, you know, as we kind of parse out all of what's going on in, in the early church, I think it's it's helpful to to stay open to, to what the reality was. And it gives us a different perspective, obviously, on you know the church at other times, including today. We've laid a good foundation for some of the things that we need to have in place before we actually jump into the question of the um uh, there's no such thing as the Orthodox Church. Uh, we do have five minutes left, though, Father Jeffrey. So let's dive into that question right now, and then we'll expand on it as well in the Patreon half of this discussion. But I guess I'll start with my observation. So when I say the phrase, there's no such thing as the Orthodox Church, what I mean by that is that there's no like worldwide organizational body that is the Orthodox Church, right? That the, the Orthodox Church is indeed churches that see in the other the gospel and, uh, and, and we're willing to have a communion with them. Is, 
is is it, whereas say like a more catholic model would i guess have the this figure of the pope as this locus of unity um so you can say in a sense that you know there is such thing as the catholic church as this worldwide organization but there really isn't such a such thing as an orthodox church that is this one monolithic organization is does that make sense yeah and although i think if you push this and this is certainly what's happened with roman catholics in the second half of the 20th century and their kind of return to sources that vatican ii represented and 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 so forth i mean they too would be hard pressed to find a kind of monolithic model for the church working you know effectively in church history we've just been talking about how you know how life really works, how history really unfolds, and how people really interrelate. And it doesn't work on that, you know, kind of model that, again, it it probably comes out of very recent ways of, of thinking about things. If it's not the circuit break model of grace that's in play, then the other, you know, kind of analogy I would give to, to that way of thinking is it's the, you know, mega corporation, right? And, you know, in a lot of people's minds, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox function analogously to something like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and these are, I mean, they're global corporations. They have, uh, you know, a, a single ownership and they're known in different parts of the world by their kind of local, you know, branches. This is a different kind of branch theory, right? So the, the local subsidiary parts of this global corporation, and you're either part of one or you're part of another. And, uh, and part of why this is, you know, an important analogy to make is when you come right down to it and you ask the question, well, how could, you know, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox ever unite? Um, under this kind of global conglomerate or mega corporation model of ecclesiology that is the default assumption of a lot of people in the modern period, you know, the question is going to be, does Coca-Cola take over Pepsi or does Pepsi take over Coke? And, you know, what will emerge at the end of that is, you know, the way in a kind of corporate takeovers, you know, take place, the, the one is absorbed into the other. And, and, and the thinking is, you know, say Coke takes over Pepsi, that at that point, you know, Pepsi becomes Coke, and then you just have Coke. And moreover, all that time that Pepsi wasn't Coca-Cola, it wasn't, you know, it was didn't factor into to the thinking or to, to the organization, you know, that it's now kind of merging with. So in other words, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox are in dialogue. And if they come to some sort of agreement of, on, on unity, it's either going to be Roman Catholicism taking over Eastern Orthodoxy, absorbing it into it. And, you know, that that which was outside has now become inside and can go forward in a united way, or it's the other way around. You know, Orthodox will say, oh, Rome needs to come back. And, uh, you know, sure, we'll even offer first among equals to the to the patriarch of Rome, to, to the Pope. Um, but, you know, it's got to be on these terms. And, you know, if and when that happens, let's say, Choose 2025, you know, 1700th anniversary of the Council of Nicaea. It's a, it's a lovely date. Or you could say 2054, 1000 years since that circuit break, you know, took place and the, the two corporations went their separate ways. But if you, whatever date it is, if, if Rome does that, then 
then all those Roman Catholics are now part of the church. They're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but they never were from the moment they left, you know, until then, right? So it's all done in the same way that you can imagine, you know, share capital and ownership and, you know, defined lines of corporate structure and, and so forth. And I'm not saying that people are using that language. I'm just saying that the way that they're thinking about the whole problem is entirely predicated on concepts that that language represents. And they're not even aware of it, right? But you hear this over and over and over again. The Orthodox Church, when people say that, they usually have in mind something like, you know, an organization with the structure of a of a mega corporation, let's say Coca-Cola, that is just out there to absorb and and take over in a kind of corporate rating sense, all of the other, you know, um, well, effectively, all the other cola companies, and you know, there is sure really should only be one. In fact, the original, I, you know, profit of cola only imagine there being one, and so there is one, and we're just going to try to take over all the others. And our recipe, our formula, is the one on which that is that is going to be based. Of course, this does not in any way describe, you know, the, the real history, as we, as we've said, you know, there were, you know, from the earliest times, many formulas for the cola and, you know, many different ways that that was, you know, uh, taken out into the world, many different ownership structures and the diversity, um, you know, what, what was there from the beginning, the unity only ever expressed in, in other ways, other than a kind of corporate structural organizational unity and monolithic way of looking at things that it's just never been present and uh, so if we are to address something like unity of the church we have to kind of abstract or transcend these ways of thinking about uh, unity in the first place you've just finished listening to another public episode of enacting the kingdom if you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.